Well, this evening uh, we come to the last chapter of the Gospel of John, John 21. John's story of Jesus begins in chapter 1, verse 19. John's story of Jesus ends in chapter 21, verse 25. But if chapter 21 is John's great commission, this end of the story, the end of Jesus' story, is the beginning of the disciples' story, the beginning of the church's story. The post-resurrection witness of the disciples is a witness to the exegesis which the Son gives to the life which is in the Father. The post-resurrection witness of the church is a testimony to the interpretation of the Father given in the Son by the paraclete spirit. But we do not have the narrative of commissioning in chapter 21 without the narrative of summoning in chapter 1. It is fatal to the unity of John's story to regard chapter 21 as an appendix, as Malakuzil does, or as a later edition, as Bultmann does, or as an unnecessary accretion, safely excised and discarded, as most radical redaction critics believe. You destroy the narrative symmetry if you dismiss chapter 21 from the authenticity and integrity of the gospel. Chapter 21 completes the exegetical story, the story inaugurated in chapter 1, the story unfolding and developing in chapters 2 through 20. The story of the witness to the Son of God, the witness to his life, death, and resurrection, the ongoing witness in the church to the Christocentric, soteriological, eschatological evangel, an evangel which flows out of the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. There is a conscious intentional symmetry between the call of the disciples in John 1 and the commissioning of the disciples in John 21. The encounter with Christ, which begins with the invitation to come and see, concludes with the poignant encounter with the post-resurrection Christ who ordains, go and feed. Go and feed the flock of God. Come and see, chapter 1. Go and feed, chapter 21. But the case for the integrity of chapter 21 does not depend merely on the narrative symmetry, the inclusio structuring the whole gospel. 
notice some of the dramatis personae. Margaret, translation, dramatis personae. Literally, yes. Persons of the drama. Thank you. One of my Latin students, too. All right, the persons of the drama of chapter 1, verses 35 and following. You will notice Jesus in verse 36, two unnamed disciples in verse 37, Simon, son of John, or son of Jonas, in verse 42, and Nathaniel in verse 45. Now, as you look at chapter 21, the dramatis personae are Jesus, verse 1, Two unnamed disciples, verse 2. Simon, son of John, or son of Jonas, verses 15, 16, and 17. And Nathaniel, verse 2. Nota bene. Margaret? Note well. Latin again. Nota bene, or N-B. Simon is called son of John, or son of Jonas only, in John chapter 1, verse 42, and John chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. And, and Nathanael appears in the fourth gospel only in chapter 1, verse 45, and in chapter 21, verse 2. Only in chapter 1 and in chapter 21 do we have a dialogue involving Jesus and these two disciples. This is not coincidental. It is part of John's literary closure. The dramatic characters of the beginning reappear in the end. One further observation about persons. In chapter 1, verse 35, two unnamed disciples of John the Baptist go to follow Jesus, verse 37. One of these men, we learn in verse 40 of chapter 1, is Andrew. The other remains mysteriously unnamed. In chapter 21, verse 2, the sons of Zebedee are listed. We know them as James and John. But the name John is mysteriously absent. In verse 7, we learn that the disciple whom Jesus loved is part of those present in this scene. In fact, by the end of this chapter, this beloved disciple is a central character in the concluding drama. But his name is never used. It is John, the son of Zebedee, the beloved disciple who follows the Lamb of God in chapter 1 and remains with him. And is it then the son, John, the son of Zebedee, the beloved disciple, in chapter 21, following the feed my lambs discourse, about whom Jesus says, if I want him to remain until I come. This is too much. This is too much to be coincidental. Chapters 1 and 21 are the bookends to this marvelous gospel by symmetry of theme, symmetry of persons, and symmetry of vocabulary. Now let me enumerate 
the vocabulary symmetries. The verb akaluthao, Adam, to follow, yes, appears in verse chapter 1, verses 37, 38, 40, and 43. It also appears in chapter 21, verses 19, 20, and 22. The imperative, akaluthē, that literally means, Adam, follow me. It appears only here in the fourth gospel, chapter 1, verse 43, and chapter 21, verses 19 and 22. The noun, mathetes, Adam, Disciple appears in chapter 1, verses 35 and 37. It appears in chapter 21, verse 1, 2, 4, 7, 8, 12, 14, and 20. The verb erkomai, Adam, come, appears in chapter 1, verses 39 and 46. It appears in chapter 21 verses 22 and 23. And finally, the verb menane, Adam, to remain, appears in chapter 1, verses 38 and 39, appears in chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. Now, I had Adam translate the Greek because the emphasis of my point is that this Greek vocabulary is symmetrical. What John uses in chapter 1. He repeats in chapter 21. He uses the same Greek lemmas, the same Greek roots. Now, one final observation. The Christological titles abound in both chapter 1 and chapter 21. Chapter 1 contains eight Christological titles of Jesus. Chapter 21 contains only one, Kyrios, Adam, Lord. But it contains that title eight times. Chapters 1 and 21, Christocentric. The inclusio bookends of this gospel, which soars like the eagle, put the spotlight on Jesus Christ. John is not interested in hour of power self-esteem on Sunday morning TV or live camels at a glass skyscraper. John is not interested in big screen Super Bowl Sunday in your church sanctuary even if you do have a gospel presentation at halftime. John is not interested in a personality-based megachurch with 1,500 upholstered seats, no hymnals, no offering, and no substance. John is not interested in a glut of programs to entertain the youth, socialize the Generation Xers, and pacify the adults. As soon as you go down that road, you have left the atmosphere of the New Testament. As soon as you go down that road, you have entered an arena alien to the New Testament, an arena of promotion, public relations, advertising, glitz, 
personality-based ministry. Christ is not the center. The program is. The ministry is. The agenda is. The church game is. But for John and all the New Testament writers, Christ is the center. If you want influence, become a politician. If you want to uh, entertain, go to Hollywood and learn a song and dance routine. If you want to manage, manipulate people, become chairman of the board. But if you want to lose your life so that sinners will gain Christ, then John's gospel will show you how to be conformed to a different arena, to an arena in which you must decrease so that Christ may increase. I have belabored this relationship between chapter 1 and chapter 21 because the integrity of the gospel is at stake. What begins with the Lamb of God in chapter 1 ends with the Lambs of God in chapter 21. To excise chapter 21 or regard it as a later afterthought from a dissimilar author is to destroy the unity and symmetry of this precious part of the Word of God. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Feed my lambs. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Feed my sheep. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Feed my sheep. An alien author absurd. An appendix, unthinkable. Following the climactic summary statement in John 20, 30, and 31, the 21st chapter may appear anticlimactic to neatly conclude his gospel at the close of chapter 20 was to put a literary exclamation point upon his narrative. Why say more? Like the preacher who doesn't know when to stop, but drones on because crispness, vividness, succinctness, simplicity, perspicuity seems to be the original sin. If you can't say it in 30 minutes, you say even less in 40 or 50 minutes. Not only are you taxing the attention span of your congregation, you are perilously close to imitating the Pharisees who imagined that they, heard, they were heard for their much speaking. Much speaking means poor preparation, little condensation, compacting, rewriting, simplifying. The error of the beginning preacher is the run-at-the-mouth disease. But when the veteran preacher is still talking after 45 minutes, he has lost touch with his audience. He is no longer communicating. He has fallen in love with the sound of his own voice. Preaching is work. It is hard work. I hesitate to say this to a lay audience, but you have no real idea because you only see the results in an hour on Sunday morning. But any preacher worth his salt is putting 15 to 20 hours per week on the sermon 
alone. And if he's not, he's shirking his job and not doing what he was called to do, which is to preach the word of God. 15 to 20 hours minimum. And I've been doing it for almost 40 years, and that's still how long it takes me. It's hard work if you're going to do the work on the text. Now, if you're going to get them off the Internet, or you're going to get them prepared with stories and illustrations, then it'll only take you 15 or 20 minutes. Or as the Presbyterian pastor who ran the church camp in my neighborhood said, oh, I do it when I'm driving between church and camp, 20 minutes in the car on Sunday morning. Yes, there are people out there in the ministry who work that way. There are. And tragically, more of them in the Reformed movement because they're busy about other things. Part of the hard work of doing preaching involves brevity, simplicity, vividness. Work at being plain, not simplistic, but plain, easy to understand, clear. Work at being vivid, painting word pictures from the text, invoking and involving the imagination of the hearer so that they see the text, see themselves vividly in Christ in the text. It's the way to communicate with children. Preach in pictures. They can see pictures. They have imaginations. Dull preachers abound. Long-winded preachers abound. Preachers who are theatrics abound. But pulpiteers, pulpiteers are rare. The pulpiteer is a craftsman, for the sermon is an art form requiring painstaking craftsmanship. The pulpiteer is transparent. He disappears from his own preaching as Christ is made central to his audience. Count them up. Count the first person personal pronouns in the sermon and measure the transparency of the preacher by the apparency of Christ. The Christocentric preacher is content to use the third person personal pronoun Jesus Christ, he is the one preached, not the preacher himself, Christ himself. Egocentric ministry is the bane of the modern pulpit. Christocentric ministry means the preacher is transparent. The preacher decreases that Christ may be apparent, that Christ may increase. If the world at large is contemptuous of the modern pulpit, and it is, it is in part because the world at large has identified the modern pulpit as theater, entertainment, indistinguishable from what occurs in the venues of performance and showmanship, and so they regard the pulpit as just another con. The pulpiteer does not reduce the preaching event to the level of the world. The pulpiteer elevates the preaching event to an interface with the eschatological arena. The pulpiteer presents his audience before the heavenly throne of grace 
enabling them by the Spirit and Christo to live as those whose lives are hidden with Christ in God. Brothers in Christ, you who hope to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, let the text craft your words. Let Christ increase, you decrease. Let your message bring the lambs of Jesus to heaven. Let your words be plain, clear, vivid, brief. And brothers and sisters in Christ, you who listen to preaching, urge your preachers to be Christ-centered, text-centered, eschatologically oriented, plain, clear, vivid, brief. Brothers and sisters, urge your preachers to be craftsmen, pulpiteers, hard workers who labor over the Word of God. For if you don't hold them accountable, there's virtually no one else that will. John 21 is generally regarded as a later addition to the fourth gospel, a narrative tacked on to the end of John's gospel in order to elevate Peter in the eyes of the later church. In technical terms, critical scholars regard John 21 as the work of a redactor with an ecclesiastical agenda, namely the primacy of the apostle Peter. According to these critics, John 21 is a misfit, out of place in a non-ecclesiological gospel. The writer of the fourth gospel is interested in Christology, soteriology, eschatology, not ecclesiology, that is, the matter of Peter's ascendancy. Thus, according to these critics, John 21 is polemical apologetic, polemical in reducing the apostles and their respective apostolic communities below the level of Peter, apologetic in providing a narrative defense for early Catholicism, the vicar of Christ, Simon Peter. The superficial character of this critical reconstruction, and I note all biblical superficiality is ultimately liberalism, regarding the text as something to be used, the superficial character of this critical reconstruction fails from the very first words of chapter 21. Metatauta, Adam, after these things. That is a phrase characteristic of the author of John's Gospel, as we have seen repeatedly in our study. A redactor would have betrayed his own style by not using this opening literary marker. The presence of Metatauta argues con continuity with the first 20 chapters, not discontinuity. I will not further detail all the factors which argue unity and integrity of John 1 to 21 against the scholarly consensus. But I do want to point out an empirical fact no extant manuscript of the Gospel of John omits chapter 21. No existing manuscript of the Gospel of John is without 
chapter 21. P66, the oldest papyrus version of most of the gospel, P66, dating from about 150 A.D., P66, has John chapter 21 right after John 20. No break, no gap. You may examine the transcription in Philip Comfort's The Text of the Earliest New Testament Greek Manuscripts, page 467 to 468. If you want to look at it at the break, you're welcome to take a look at it. The textual evidence, the evidence of the papyri, the evidence of the codices, the evidence of the uncials, etc. The textual evidence is unanimous. John 21 is an integral part of a whole gospel, numbering 21, not 20, 21 chapters. Case closed. Well, let me put one more nail in the coffin. Chapters 20 and 21 are a narrative unit. The cohesive factors, Peter and the beloved disciple. Peter and the beloved disciple come to the tomb in chapter 20. Peter and the beloved disciple behold the risen Christ in chapter 20. In chapter 21, Peter and the beloved disciple are commissioned by the risen Christ their destinies revealed by the Son of God who knows all things. I have mentioned that chapter 21 is John's great commission. And I have made the case for a similar pattern, that is, a great commission in all four Gospels, not just Matthew 28:20. Suffice it to say here, a Johannine Gospel without a Johannine great commission leaves the fourth gospel an anomaly. No. John, like his apostolic writing peers, realizes that a gospel without extension beyond the resurrection is a gospel unopened to the future, closed with the resurrection as if that is the final story of the narrative. All the gospel writers record the life of resurrection in the ongoing life of the apostles. These apostles, united to the risen Christ, are to be the vessels by which the life of resurrection is revealed to the church. The church as sheep-shepherd motif returns in John 21. An analepsis of John 10, a prolepsis of the eschatological shepherd. Do you recall that final scene in the epic William Wyler film Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston and Stephen Boyd, the shepherd with his sheep beneath a hill on which stand three crosses? Brilliant. Brilliant, and from a Jewish director. Brilliant. As in chapter 20, there are two scenes with two sub-scenes in chapter 21. The first two sub-scenes are bracketed by an inclusio. Notice verse 1. Jesus manifested himself. Now, look at verse 14. Jesus was 
manifested. Subscene 1 covers the fishing expedition on the sea, verses 1 to 8. Subscene 2 covers the fish feast on the shore, verses 9 to 14. The second set of dual subscenes contains a dialogue with Peter about Peter, verses 15 to 19, and a dialogue with Peter about the beloved disciple, verses 19 to 23. You will notice I am suggesting an overlap of verse 19 in those two subsequent subscenes. Interestingly, in parallel, chapter 20 with chapter 21 concludes with summary statements. The beloved disciples witness, verse 24 of chapter 21, and the surpassing excellence of the subject of his book, verse 25 of chapter 21. Very similar to verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. The two scenes featuring Christ and Peter are mimetic. Now, this term, this term mimetic from mimesis, I've used before, is an ancient literary device which has been used in literature down through the centuries. Uh, Eric Auerbach's magisterial book on Mimesis. Auerbach was a professor of literature at Princeton University. Uh, he's now dead. That book, entitled Mimesis, is a tour de force of the technique, the mimetic technique in Greek, Roman, medieval, and modern literature. His chapter on figura, or typology in literature, is one of the best ever written with wide implications for the biblical text. Northrop Fry, Leland Riken, Frank Kermode, and many others have been profoundly influenced by Auerbach's book. Deconstructionism and postmodernism has dismissed Auerbach's thesis that literature is mimetic, that is, imitative like a mime imitates life. Mimesis is the Greek word for imitation. To say with Auerbach that literature is reflective, a mirror of existence, is to posit a standard against which the literature and the human condition may be measured. Deconstructionism and postmodernism will have no part of standards, let alone objective reflections of life. Well, using the category of mimesis, what is mimetic about Christ's encounter with Peter in John 21? Peter is reliving his actions in John 18 when he denied Christ. The mimesis is that chapter 21 holds a mirror up to the life of Peter. The transformation of Peter in John 21, however, is not a mimesis of humanistic reversal. Peter does not imitate himself in his better days. 
before chapter 18. No, the unique mimesis of John's portrait of the encounter of Christ with Peter is the imitatio Christi, the imitation of Christ. Will you notice, not the obvious initiative Jesus takes to reverse the denials of Peter. Will you notice not the charcoal fire, anthracion, from which we get the word anthracite, coal, not the charcoal fire of verse 9 in chapter 21, an obvious echo of the charcoal fire, anthracion, of chapter 18, verse 18. And will you notice not the breaking of day in verse 4 of chapter 21, an hour duplicating the hour at which the cock crows, verse 27 of chapter 18. Please notice none of these remarkable mimetic echoes, but do notice the more than remarkable mimesis of Peter and Jesus in the dialogue exchange of verses 15 to 17. This famous, this beautiful, dialogic, mimetic restoration is singularly unique. Jesus makes Peter an imitator of himself. Jesus makes Peter a reflection of himself. Jesus perfectly accommodates his imperatives to his own indicatives. Christ is the shepherd. Peter is the mime of Christ as under-shepherd. Now you will notice that the indicatives of Christ are implicit in chapter 21, explicit in chapter 10, the chapter of the good shepherd. The eschatological shepherd reflects himself, mirrors himself in the imperatives to the under-shepherd. Simon, son of John, I, Jesus, son of God, I, the eschatological shepherd of the sheep, commission you to mirror me with my sheep. Shepherding by Peter, is mirroring the shepherd Jesus. The imperatives, bosca, tend, poimane, shepherd, reflect the indicatives. The mimesis here in John 21, 15 to 17 is participative. Christ unites Peter to himself as eschatological shepherd of the sheep. Peter's ministry as shepherd is united to the ministry of the shepherd. No shepherding which is shepherding in truth without the centrality, the mirror reality of the chief shepherd risen from the dead. The imperatives here are not absolute or atomistic. They are relational, by which I mean they are not to be isolated from the relationship with the source of shepherding. Pastoral ministry is an imperative, but it is not an imperative isolated, abstracted 
from its indicative relation, united to the eschatological pastor, pastor, in union with the eschatological shepherd, shepherd, identifying with, participating in the eschatological pastor, shepherd, pastor as a shepherd. Pastoral imperatives without pastoral indicatives breed tyranny. Pastoral absolutism, ministerial elitism, management-based, not shepherd-based bureaucratism. We've got enough of that. We don't need any more of it. The mime is Christ. Peter is to imitate him. Here is the model for ministry. Not John Calvin, not Jonathan Edwards, not John Murray. The model for ministry is Christ. In all our rhetoric about biblical ministry, we have succeeded more in displacing Christ with anthropocentric models than imitating Christ. You begin your philosophy of ministry with the resurrection, the resurrection of the eschatological pastoral minister. You begin your practice of ministry by dying, death to all models which do not mime you with Christ. You inaugurate your ministry with death, death to yourself, death to the world, death to the agendas which tyrannize the lambs of Jesus. You begin your ministry with mimesis, imitation, conformity to the life, the resurrection life, the semi-eschatological resurrection life of Christ. You inaugurate your ministry by dying with Christ, by being raised up together with Christ, by being seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, by union with the great shepherd of the sheep. That's your model for ministry That's where you begin. That's what you're called to be. You're not called to be an imitation of the guru ministers of this world. 